Welcome to the Opera Cheat Sheet. I'm Sinjin Flynn. And I'm Eric Skelly. And this week, we're talking about Verdi's famous Rigoletto, Eric, which debuted at uh, La Fenice in Venice in 1851. Indeed, it did. And this is, boy, this is a really interesting piece because... It's just full of characters who are just everyone about as loathsome as they could possibly be. With I mean, one exception. With one noted exception, which is, I think, what really this, this opera kind of hinges upon. And that's, of course, Rigoletto's daughter, Gilda, who is the one character who is pure of soul. I mean, she is truly innocent and truly, you know, all good and, and loving and, and really very innocent to the point of, of naivete. And in some respects, that's her undoing. It is it? her undoing. And, and this opera really hinges upon the soprano singing Gilda being able to convey that effectively. Because for a long time, and, and I, think, I think you may relate to this, for a long time, I didn't think this opera kind of worked because I never saw a Gilda that really kind of was able to portray that innocence convincingly. And I just always thought that the character was just kind of stupid, you know, <laughs> until I saw one soprano, and I'll, I'll tell you who it was, it was Maureen O'Flynn, and she just completely changed my whole uh, view of the opera, single-handedly. She, she brought it. She really convincingly portrayed this, this angelic young woman, and all of a sudden, everything fell into place, and it all made sense. Rigoletto, her father, has raised her in isolation. Indeed. He's insisted upon her being kept away from society. She has a, uh, a companion. Yeah, a nurse companion. Giovanna. right. Who, who is there to, you know, to tend to her, etc. But Gilda is largely unaware of what happens in the larger outside world. Well, and the reason he does that, of course, is because he is part of the court of the Duke of Mantua which is about as morally bankrupt a society as <laughs> as one can possibly imagine. These are awful, awful people. Uh, the Duke, chief among them. And, the, you know, Rigoletto rightfully wants to shield his daughter, the one good thing in his life. Because Rigoletto, it has to be said, is... Um, is as much of a bad guy at court as the rest. He is. He's he's dreadful. In fact, it's what's really interesting is after he meets the assassin Sparafucile, who offers his services to Rigoletto, and, and Rigoletto sends him on his way, saying, I'll, I'll call you if I need you. And the first thing that Rigoletto says when he's alone is, Parisiamo, how alike we are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I with my words, he with his dagger. We're both basically saying they're both assassins. And as we see in in the course of the opera, Rigoletto is. He plays that role. He's the court jester. But he is a nasty piece of work. It's all about, you know, mocking people in pain. And and, uh, he's very much a part of the Duke of Mantua's court. And he plays his part very well. And he becomes a victim of that court as well. He does. He's a victim of his own... Petard. <laughs> yes, like. he's hoisted by his own petard, sadly, and his daughter is the is the victim. The Duke of Mantua is a sort of a, a almost a Don Giovanni type figure. He's yes, he's although, a, a womanizer. He has no moral compunction about uh, seducing the wives of his courtiers, etc. And he has an awful reputation. He does, and he's filled his court with people that are very much like him and who are enablers, aiding and abetting, and 
you know, they think nothing of going out on a Saturday night and uh, abducting a woman for the Duke's pleasure and bringing her back to court and letting him have his way with her. And that's fun for them. You know, they're horrible people, truly. In Act One of Rigoletto, there's a party, there's a ball going on. Yes. And it is interrupted by Count Monterone. Yes. Who comes and who denounces the Duke for having seduced and ruined his daughter. Right. And he curses the Duke, but not before, as he comes, you know, thundering in, and he has this great big entrance, and it's a big basso profondo role, and and uh, before he really gets going, Rigoletto interrupts him and mocks him, and mocks his his outrage over the ruination of his daughter, and so Monterone, when he takes up, uh, when he when he resumes again, he curses the Duke for what he did to his daughter, and he curses Rigoletto for mocking a father's pain. Uh, and he, he uses the words, si maledetto, be accursed, which apparently in their world is just the worst thing you could possibly say to a person because it haunts Rigoletto. I mean, really haunts him. He cannot get that out of his head that the old man cursed him. And he says it over and over and over again to the point where you wonder you know, by the end of the opera, you know, he, he believes the curse has, has worked and, and has, has ruined him. But, you know, was it, really, uh, was it really the curse or was it a self-fulfilling prophecy on Rigoletto's part? And the reason that Monterone's curse has such an effect on Rigoletto is because, of course, Rigoletto sees himself in Monterone. Yes. And, and the destruction of Monterone's daughter's reputation could be the destruction of Gilda's reputation, who is this this child that Rigoletto has raised since her, her mother died when she was very young. He has raised her. She is his everything. And, of course, he understands completely where Monteroni is coming from. And here again, we have a favorite topic of Verdi's, which is the parent-child relationship, and specifically father-daughter. You know, we see it in Aida, we see it in Louisa Miller, we see it in Simone Bocanegra, and we see it here uh, in, in one of its most potent uh, expressions of this father's all-encompassing love for his daughter, the only good thing in his life. The complication here is that the Duke, the nasty Duke, Mm-mm has seen and has fallen in love with Gilda, not knowing who she is. And she not knowing who Who he is. is. She thinks he's a student. uh, And she's uh, charmed in her naivete by his attentions to her. She sees him when when she goes to church on Sundays. Indeed. And uh, there's there's a a scene for the two of them. She believes he's a student whose name is Gualtier Malade. And uh, once he leaves... She then is musing upon his name and upon these feelings he stirred up within her. And she has one of the most famous arias in the soprano repertoire and in all of opera, Caro Nome, Dear Name. And she, it's basically just her reflecting on these, these, these feelings of, of love that she's feeling for the first time. And it's, uh, it's a real tour de force for a coloratura soprano. Some of the courtiers abduct Gilda. Right. With Rigoletto's unsuspecting involvement. Right, because they have seen, they've been spying on him and they've seen him with her and they think that she's his mistress. Right. Right. They think that he's keeping her on the side. They have no idea that she's his daughter. 
and they abduct her and they take her to the palace. And what happens there? Not good things. Right. Not She's good taken to the Duke and he he has his way with her. Yeah, he does. He does. Uh, Rigoletto comes uh, storming in after realizing that he'd been duped and he had actually been duped into helping them abduct her. And he comes storming in, looking for her. He has, oh, he has this amazing arietto called Cortigiani Vil Razza Danata. Courtesans, you vile, damned race. And he just lets loose on them. It's, it's a really exciting piece of music that if you've ever heard this piece, you really look forward to it. And, you know, you really want to hear the baritone just unload on these vile courtiers. When he sees that it's not having any effect, he immediately does an about-face and goes into begging mode. He begs them, beseeches them, please let me have my daughter back. And uh, they, they do finally allow her to come in, and uh, he, he, they disperse, sort of keeping an eye on the situation all the while. And um, Gilda is forced to tearfully confess to him that she, she has been ruined. And she tells him the whole backstory of how she thought he was a student. Uh, and she, you know, here she finds out he's the Duke of Mantua. Now, you know, her honor is lost. She's, she's ashamed. So, naturally, <laughs> Rigoletto's thoughts turn to vengeance. <laughs> and that's where Sparafucile comes in. Yes, it and is. And he engages him to assassinate the Duke. Indeed. So, at the start of Act 3, uh, we have this uh, setup. We are on the outskirts of town in this shady little shack, basically, that Sparafucile is holed up in, in with his sister, Madalena. Madalena. And you have Sparafucile and Madalena inside awaiting the Duke's arrival. And outside, uh, you've got uh, Rigoletto and Gilda. Because what Rigoletto hopes to do is to let Gilda see the Duke as he really is. Right. Right. And she does, you know, because he, you know, once he sets sight on Madalena, he's, he's in full Duke mode. And they have a, a wonderful quartet, which is one of the most famous pieces in all of opera. You've got uh, Gilda on, uh, on the top soprano line. You've got Maddalena, uh, the Duke, and Rigoletto, all expressing, doing what opera does best. They're all expressing completely different things all at the same time. And you can follow everyone clearly through the course of this quartet. Sparafucile is going to stab the Duke. Right. Madalena, who is intrigued by the Duke, yeah. manages to get Sparafucile to change his plan. Yes, she begs him, please, please spare the Duke. Uh, I like the guy, mm-hmm. she says. And he uh, says, okay, I'll take and I'll kill the next person that comes in. We'll put his body or that person's body in the sack and make it, it look like the, the, the we've got the Duke. Yeah. So... Meanwhile, <laughs> Rigoletto, having shown Gilda what the Duke is really like, has, has disguised her in, in, in male clothing so she can send her off. To Verona. To Verona. And he, he sends her off and tells her, you know, just go straight there and I'll, I'll, I'll see you when this is all done. She doesn't listen. <laughs> she, back, she comes back around because she still, God love her, <laughs> has feelings for the Duke. 
And she goes and she knocks on the door. Well, she hears, she overhears Madalena and Sparafucile's discussion about murdering the next person that comes in True. in place of the Duke. And so she almost, she, she, she sacrifices herself. Absolutely. She knocks on that door knowing what is going to happen. But you know what was really interesting? I mentioned the soprano Marino Flynn earlier. I remember at the time she was talking about the role of Gilda and her motivations at this point. And, you know, we all think that she's sacrificing herself for the Duke. And her take on it, which I found really interesting, was not so much that she was sacrificing herself for the Duke. She was saving her father, father. from having the Duke's blood, the on, Duke's his blood hands. on his hands. Mm -hmm. And that actually, at least to me, that made a lot more sense. You know, that, that makes her look less foolish. Yes, yeah. Uh, and much more truly angelic. So, of course, she goes in. Sparafucile does stab her to death, puts her in the sack. Now, they give the sack to Rigoletto. Right. And Rigoletto is going to dispose of it in the river. Dump it in the river. And just as he's about to do that, he hears... The a voice Duke. singing La, La Donna Immobile, which he has already sung. You know, it's it's one of the most famous tenor arias, of course, in all of opera. And you can, you can hear him in the background, and the Rigoletto just freezes, you know, and you can just see the chill running down his spine when he hears that voice. He opens because the sack. Because that means the Duke is still alive. alive. It's, so who's in the sack? Who's in the sack? So he opens the sack, and of course, it's his own daughter who's who's basically lying there bleeding to death. And that's all she wrote. Pretty much. <laughs> so where is the strength in this piece? What is it that makes it the famous opera that it is today? Well, gosh, I mean, over and above the abundance of incredible melodic invention, you know, and it's, a, it's an amazing score. There's no fat in this score at all. You can't cut it because just, it's just so perfectly composed. Uh, over and above all the famous numbers that come from it, and there are a lot of them. This is the turning point in Verdi's career. This marks the beginning of, um, well, before, always in Italian opera, you have recitative, which is the connecting material between the numbers, and then you have arias and duets and, and all kinds of things, okay? So all the action would happen in the recitative, and then the action would come to a stop, and everybody would comment on it in the arias and the numbers. Until you get to Rigoletto, and Verdi changes all of that. Now, all of a sudden, he can move the action along all the way through the opera, even during the numbers. And the, the, the real uh, great example of that is the first meeting between Rigoletto and Spadafucile. You can hear the melody, but it's not in the voices. It's in the accompaniment. It's in the orchestra. It's in the low strings at that point. And it, it stays in the melody all the way through. And meanwhile, Rigoletto and Sparafucile are having this dialogue on top of the melody. It doesn't have the melody in the voices. And so this is a turning point. And from here on forward, Verdi will take Italian opera in directions that had hitherto never been uh, thought of. By the time he's finished with you know, Otello and Falstaff at the end of his career, he's just completely taken it in a, in a completely new direction and making it much more stage-worthy and, uh, and created indelible masterpieces. And it really starts with Rigoletto. Verdi is Rigoletto. That's this week's Opera Cheat Sheet. I'm Sinjin Flynn. And I'm Eric Skelly. Thank you for listening. <laughs>